The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode we're going to do part two of our interview with Zach Arnold. This episode we're going to focus on Glee and Burn Notice. Last episode was all about Fitness in Post, and if you haven't seen it, you can go to fitnessinpost.com. And this episode, we're going to go into his editing approach, or his approach to editing. So sit back and enjoy part two of my interview with Zach Arnold. Originally, I got into the post industry. If you define post industry by like getting into LA, um, I actually started, you know, being in post, quote unquote, when I was like 10, 12 years old. I've always wanted to do this. I just didn't know when I was that young that it was actually a real job. Um, but I started, you know, you always hear these stories about people with their home video cameras and their VHS players. And that's me. That's my story where I was kind of cutting my own home movies at 10 and, you know, 10 years old with two VHS players and cutting back and forth and then using a video toaster in high school and anybody listening is thinking, oh my God, a video toaster, dear Lord, did any, I didn't know anybody used one of those. Um, but yeah, I used a video toaster for a couple of years and then did um, linear editing in college and then eventually found the Avid and Final Cut. Um, but I've, I've literally, it's the only thing that I've ever done is editing. I've never had another job or, you know, a different trajectory. It's always been editing. But um, my story for how I get into L.A., which most people absolutely hate because it's pretty much impossible. But it was the, the night before my college graduation, and I had just sent out one resume through, a, you know, a, a web search engine or something. This is before a lot of people were finding jobs online. This was back in like 2002, I think. So this is just when the idea of finding a job online was starting. Um, and this company called me back and said, hey, we saw your resume. You know, we'd love to interview. Can, can we interview you on Monday? And the part of the story I left out is that I lied about my home address and I put an L.A. address. Um, and I was in Michigan at the time. Um, because if you don't have a local address in, in Los Angeles, they're never going to call you. Um, so I put a friend of mine who had just moved out there, I gave them him, his address. So I said, sure, yeah, I can be there, no problem. So I went to my parents and I said, um, I have to go to Los Angeles. What, what are we going to do? So I went to my graduation ceremony and had dinner with my family and the next morning got on a plane and did my job interview and arrived back a few days afterwards. They called and said, can you start Monday? And I drove across the country, and I've been working in the post-production industry in L.A. ever since for the last, I guess, 12, 13 years now. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> nuts. Well, how, so what was your first job then? What were you doing there? Yeah, so my first job, I was an assistant editor at a boutique trailer house. Um, this is a company that had just finished up doing all of the marketing and advertising for Memento. They'd done the trailer and all the TV spots. And that's my favorite movie of all time ever. Like, that's my number one. And I remember seeing that film in the theater, and it just reinforced me thinking, this is exactly what I want to do for a living. Like, to a T, it's working on films like this. And unfortunately, films like that really aren't made 
anymore other than by Christopher Nolan himself. Um, so there's not a lot of stuff out there like that. Um, but that's just kind of really made me think this is what I want to do. So getting the option to work for the company that did all of their marketing was just awesome. Um, so yeah, I was a, an assistant editor there to begin with. So can you give us some insight into trailer editing? Because I'm always fascinated by by this sort of area of the industry. Like how do you tackle uh, taking this, these feature films and cutting them down into uh, two minutes? Yeah, so the and a lot of people ask that as well, and I had all the same questions when I first went there because I had never done anything like that, and I was asking all the editors, like, how do you guys actually do this? And the process is really just all about breaking the film down into really, really simple parts, and I've cut so many trailers now that I kind of have the breakdown process down to a science, but basically they hand you the whole film, or if it's a really, really high-security film, sometimes they'll lift a few scenes or you know just do something so you can't just put it up on YouTube. Uh, but you essentially get the whole film. And what you have to do is just before worrying about cutting a trailer, just get to know the film really, really, really well with multiple viewings and breaking it down into pieces. So my basic system is that I'll, I'll watch the film once and I won't take notes. I'll just watch it like I'm the audience member, like I rented it and you know I'm, I'm watching it on TV at home. And I say to myself, how did this affect me? What did I relate to the most? What did I take away from it? And what did I feel? like? What, what emotionally did I take away from this movie? And I kind of stick that into a, a memory bank. And then the next two to three viewings, I just break it down in my edit system into to its smallest part. So I start by breaking it down into scenes and subclipping it. So I have really detailed subclips that have all the scene information so I can kind of go through quickly and reference whatever piece I need. And then I'll break it down even further so I have it as individual quotes from characters. Like I'll have a bin for, you know, Bob, right? Here are all the good lines that Bob has that would be good for a trailer. And here are all the good lines for Jane that would be good for a trailer. And then you break it down into images. Like here's a good image of a mountain or here's a great image of somebody doing the, the quintessential head turn, right, that I can slow down in the trailer. So you just have all these subclips and all of these markers. So when you're, you know, working on your trailer and you're in the middle of cutting it, you're saying, oh, where's that one shot of that guy? where he brings his eyebrow up. That would be a great transition. Oh, here it is. I have a marker for it. So you don't spend all day just constantly scanning and scrubbing through your footage trying to find moments. You've broken them all down. And the process of breaking them down is kind of a way, it's a process I call mental digitizing, where you're remembering those pieces in your head because you have to write a marker for them. So that's the process of breaking it down. And then when it comes to the story and how to tell it, Sometimes that's based on the studio because they'll be very clear about what they want. Sometimes it'll be a creative director or a producer that will hand you a script. And sometimes it's just you kind of playing jazz and just throwing a bunch of stuff in there and playing with it and seeing what makes sense. And then a story just kind of comes from it. Um, But once you've cut trailers, you realize that for the most part, all trailers are almost exactly the same structure and you just need to plug in the pieces into that structure. So there's, it's still a three-act structure. You still have a beginning, a middle, and end, and you just have to plug the pieces in for your specific film. So one of those uh, pieces would be tone. So how, how did you go about building tone? Because I find that plays such a huge part in all the commercials, right? It's oh, like, you know, here's an action I mean, film. Tone is what it's all about in trailers. That's the, the thing that a lot of people, I think, miss when it comes to cutting a trailer is that they spend so much time worrying about all the details of story or all these specific images, and nobody ever watches a trailer and gets done with it and knows exactly what the movie is about or remembers all the lines. They just remember how they felt for two and a half minutes, 
And if you do a good job, they say, I want to feel that for 90 minutes. Therefore, I'm willing to pay $15 to do that, right? So that's what a good trailer does. A bad trailer will do just the opposite. And what you have to do is when you're watching the film, it's one of two things. It's either a really good movie, you just steal their tone. And you say, they set a great tone in this movie. I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm going to do it with my trailer. And usually you're just doing it by using the same or similar music choices because music is really what sets the tone on a trailer. Or the flip side is if you are cutting a trailer for a really, really bad movie, and I've done that way more than I've cut trailers for good movies. Um, I've cut a lot of trailers for really bad films. Um, and what you have to do is say, all right, so this movie was not good and the tone wasn't good, but let's pretend the movie was good. What would the tone be? So you're creating the tone of the film that it didn't succeed in doing, and that's your trailer. So that the tone is really the number one thing. It, people get so wrapped up in just getting all the story beats and knowing who all the characters are. It's like nobody cares. Just make it feel good and make them want to experience that emotion longer and that's what gets butts and seats that's like the it's like the movie pearl harbor i remember seeing that trailer and just being blown away and like i've got to see this and <laughs> then seeing the movie and being like let down <laughs> i was like yeah, the trailer was better <laughs> yeah and th that happens a lot i mean yeah. you, you see a lot of movies where you know you, you realize that they just didn't live up to the trailer because Every single – and this this is the quintessential thing that everybody says. Well, all the good stuff is in the trailer. Well, sometimes when you're a trailer editor, your job is to get people to buy the tickets. And if there's two and a half minutes of good material in the whole movie, you're not going to pick the bad stuff to put in the trailer. You're going to pick the good stuff. So that's it's not the fault of the people making the trailer. It's the fault of the people making the movie. Um, I had one guy that had come up to me. This is way back early in my career. Um, I met him in the gym of all places. I think we were doing a yoga class together, and he came up to me. And he's like, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I just I edit trailers. He's like, oh, that's a really cool job. Is there anything recent that you can tell me that you worked on? And I said, yeah, I just I did a trailer for this really small indie film called North Fork, which is one of the Polish Brothers movies that has Nick Nolte and James Woods and Daryl Hannah and Kyle MacLachlan, and it's got a huge cast. And his face kind of straightened, and he looked at me, and he's like, you owe me $10. It's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I saw your trailer and I wanted to see that movie and that movie sucked. I want my $10. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm just doing my job. And apparently I was successful. Yeah. Wow. And so how did you transition from trailers to uh, television? Well, I actually transitioned into features first. Television is actually fairly a fairly new thing to me. Not so much anymore. I've been in it for over five years now. But um, I transitioned to features first. And basically, I had just kind of come to this realization that a lot of people in our industry do if they work in reality or they work in advertising where they say, I came out here because I really wanted to do narrative and I'm not doing narrative and I don't know how to transition into it. But usually people hit that realization when they're like 30 or 35 and they have a mortgage and they have kids. And it makes it really hard to make that transition. I had that realization when I was 24. And I said, I'm just getting to the point now where I'm getting recruited by large trailer companies and they're throwing a lot of money at me and they're throwing these big movies at me. But I know that if I take these offers that this is the road I'm going to go down for 10 or 15 years and I'm never going to be able to go back. And I had alternatively an option to work on a really, really small independent film that I found just through a random connection of a connection. And it paid less than I made in my starting job as an assistant editor. 
um, as opposed to what would have been the six-figure options that I was getting from these other companies. And I said, this is going to be one of those crazy moments in my life that I look back at and I might hate myself. But I walked into the office of my uh, my boss at the trailer company and I said, I'm going to give you my 30 days notice because this is my one chance. I said, this is it. If I want to get into narrative and I want to make the jump, I'm single and I live in a one bedroom apartment and I have no ties and I'm going to make the jump and I have this little tiny independent film and I'd like to work on it. And she said, I totally respect that. Thanks for letting me know. And I went back to making, I think the equivalent of maybe $10 an hour working on an independent film. And I did that for, God, I think I did that for almost a year. Um, and then that film ended up getting purchased by Fox Searchlight for almost $5 million. And which film was that? That was Fat Girls, and I highly recommend for everybody listening to not go watch it because it's not any of my best work. But that was where it all started was Fat Girls, and by the way, that's P-H-A-T, girls with a Z. So, And yes. how did you get onto Burn Notice? Uh, that's another fun story. Um, this is another one kind of like the whole story of going out from college to L.A. that everybody listens to the story and they're like, you got to be kidding me. Um, but the short version is I actually got my job for burn notice off of Facebook. Um, the, the longer version of it is that I was working on a web series for Sony called The Bannon Way, which was kind of a high profile web series slash feature film that they were doing. It was, you know, very high action, high style. Um, and I actually had never seen Burn Notice, but I was doing a lot of stylistic choices in my editing that were very similar to Burn Notice. So my mom had said to me one day, she's like, you have to see the show Burn Notice. It's so good. I just love it. You have to watch it. And I watched it and I said, holy cow, like this is really similar to a lot of the stuff that I'm doing and it's really cool. I need to learn more about this show. So what I did was I took the trailer that I had just finished cutting for The Bannon Way and I just went on Facebook and I Facebook stalked everybody that worked on Burn Notice and I just messaged them this trailer. Said, hey, love your show Burn Notice. If you have two minutes, I'd love for you to check out this trailer. I had a lot of influence from your show. Would love your feedback. That was it, right? And I didn't hear back from everybody except for one guy. And that was Steve Lang, who was one of the, the editors on Burn Notice. And he was like, wow, this, this trailer's really good. We should, you know, we should just hang out. It looks like you know what you're doing. So he and I had lunch one day. We hit it off, just had a good personal relationship. And I had kind of slipped him the DVD of The Bannon Way, which hadn't even been released yet. And he called me back a couple weeks later. And he's like, dude, what is this show? He's like, there's no way this is going to be on the web. It, like don't tell anybody I said this, but this looks better than Burn Notice. Like, what is this show? It's like, oh, it's just this web thing I've been doing. It's like, this is really cool, man. You should be really proud of it. And he slipped that DVD to the um, to Matt Nix, who was the showrunner of Burn Notice, and to a couple of the executive producers. And they looked at it, and they loved it. And it turned out that Steve was going to do a pilot for Matt Nix and needed somebody to cover for him for one or two episodes on Burn Notice. And he was kind enough to get me an interview basically telling me, is like, listen, I'm doing this as a, a courtesy, but you don't have a resume for TV and you're never going to get hired. But, you know, I, I, I think you deserve it for the work that you've done. Um, and I talked myself into the job. And after they saw my first episode, my first director's cut for the first episode, that was it. And I did 27 episodes for four seasons. Wow. And now in the, in the show, they actually rely on um... – like actual sort of CIA techniques and spy techniques. Did you guys have someone uh, helping you guys out with that? 
Uh, the writers did, yeah. It wasn't something that they had so much for the last few seasons because at that point um, they were they felt pretty comfortable with a lot of the stuff that they were doing. But they actually had a former CIA operative. His name is Michael Wilson, which is really funny because Michael Weston is the name of the main character. Uh, but Michael Wilson was their um, their kind of you know he would look at the the scripts or look at the things they were doing and say, well, you know, you can never really do that, or you might want to change this or whatever it is. So yeah, for the first several seasons, it was pretty accurate and then once it got into the later years they got a little bit more lax and I'm like well we think it would work so we're just gonna do it um but i think there was actually a mythbusters episode uh at one point where they did some of the stuff on burn notice and i guess some of it worked and some of it didn't so wow now the the show is driven by his voiceover um, mm-hmm. a lot and a lot of people would say that that's a crutch but i felt that it was used in a unique way uh in the show that it wasn't a crutch it was more of like um it became a part of the story process and it wasn't sort of this throwaway moment to get you to the next scene or to quickly fill people in. How did you guys approach using in voiceover in the, in the show? The process is that all, not all, but most of the voiceover was written into the scripts. It was from the very first draft. Um, voiceover would definitely drive the story. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of one of those things where if we were in the middle of a scene and you're like, I have no idea what he is doing right now and this is way too complicated, all right, we'll just write a voiceover. Um, so in that sense, there was a lot of voiceover that was used as a transitional device to get us from one place to the next. Um, a lot of One of the most common issues that we had was transitioning because there were so many things going on in that show. Like the plots were just ridiculous. So much detail. A lot like if you ever sit down and break down how much they achieve in 42 minutes, it's pretty astounding. Um, and sometimes you're just like, I don't know how to get from this scene to this scene and have the audience understand the transition. Cue stock footage montage with voiceover. You know, so you'd you spend a day cutting one of those that didn't exist because you don't know how to transition. And what was the sort of editorial process for the, the, the show itself? Like, how did you, what, what kind of footage did you get in? How did you approach uh, cutting it? Um, the, it was a really aggressive shooting schedule for the kind of show that it was. Um, most network TV shows will be an eight or nine day shooting schedule, and it's mostly a bunch of people talking in rooms. Um, Burn Notice was a seven day shooting schedule, and they would have these gigantic action sequences and just these really dramatic setups where you have three characters in three different locations simultaneously. Everybody's trying to, you know, time their actions. And uh, so it was really, really aggressive. So a lot of times they would have two units shooting, which meant that on average, on a good day, I would probably get three to four hours of dailies. And on a bad day, I would get like six hours of dailies. Um, And I've never seen the volume of dailies that I've gotten on Burn Notice. I've never seen that in any of the other shows that I've worked on. On the last two shows that I've worked on, um, if we get in three hours, people are like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We have three hours of dailies. And I'm like, "Uh, that's that's an easy day, guys. So you can handle three hours. Don't sweat it. How did you tackle – like how long was your your post schedule? So like you got – Yes. Our post schedule was also very aggressive. Um, you, basically, we had two days after uh, the dailies. So that means that I had nine days to cut an entire episode. And that included sound effects and music and transitions and voiceover and stock footage. So those first nine days of an episode were just brutal. I mean, it was really rough. It was, you know, if you were really on top of it and you didn't have any other distractions from another episode that wasn't complete, it was 14 hour days for nine days in a row to really be able to have a solid first cut. After that, 
it was pretty simple um, because then you're just in the notes phase and those are pretty normal days. Um, every once in a while you'd have some kind of hiccup and you'd, you know, you'd have crazy notes from somebody and have to spend a couple extra days. But really it, I had a very, it was the opposite experience on bird notice that I've had on other shows where on the other shows I've worked on, the first cut is really easy because there's not that much material. You can get through it in an eight or 10 hour day. But then when all of the cooks come out of the kitchen, that's when you start working your weekends and working your 14 hour days. But bird notice, it was, it was all in the editor's cut. The first nine days of editor's cut were, that was the marathon. Wow. And what kind of like, um, cause it sounds like they were sort of, doing like a running gun they had seven days so they had to go to the different locations and get everything so was it uh, very structured in its shooting process or was it sort of all over the place in terms of what you were expecting from them yeah i wouldn't say structured is the best word to use i think that the all over the place is is much more apropos i mean this is really guerrilla filmmaking you think that oh it's usa network and you know they've got all this time and all this money but it really was guerrilla filmmaking like they would just run and gun and get whatever they could and just rush from one location to the next and you just kind of get what you get which for from an editorial standpoint meant a lot of challenges because you'd read a, a a page and you'd you know hear that oh well you know this gas tanker is gonna come down this road and then it's gonna stop and it's gonna blow up and there's gonna be a shootout around it and you picture kind of what your footage is gonna look like and then they come to you after they shoot and they're like well we got about half the setups that we thought we were gonna get because this happened and that happened and the weather happened and blah 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 so you need to kind of take what we have and just you know make it work so there's a lot of that where you get a lot less pieces than anybody really envisioned and you just you piece it together and do all these crazy editorial cheats to make it seem like it was shot the way that it was shot as opposed to, you know, not being able to come together. So I I would I always tell people that working on Burn Notice was like editorial boot camp because between the schedule and the material and the amount of time and the amount of problems that had to be fixed like you just you learn so much about how to fix problems through editing and how to just deliver on a crazy schedule. Now I have one last question that I ask everyone, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh yes, I knew you did this, and I totally didn't prepare. Um, I have I have a lot of them, a lot of really bad movies that I like, but I would probably say. The number one that comes up in my head is Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah it is good. a masterpiece. So that was part two of my interview with Zach. Make sure to check out AOTG.com. If you see anything that's post-related that should be shared with others, make sure to do that at AOTG.com. You can check out our AOTG.com plugins, AOTG.com slash plugins, to submit them directly through your browser. You can also download the Assembly app, which has a new issue out now. And you can also sign up for our newsletter. So if you go to aotg.com tools, you'll see all these things available for you now. I'd like to thank Andre Elijah for editing this episode. I'd like to thank Zach Arnold for joining me. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.